Good morning, Grace Church. Having made our way all the way through Genesis over the past many months, we'll spend one more week, this week, this morning, going back through the entire thing, all 50 chapters. Our main aim, my main aim in this sermon is singular, and that is to answer one question. What does Genesis tell us about our place in God's plan? Or let me say that same thing in a different way. What does Genesis tell us about what it means to live our lives in a manner pleasing to God? Genesis isn't the whole Bible, but it's the foundation for the Bible, and it tells us much in these questions. We'll see the answer uh, to that, that question as we revisit seven of the main themes in the book. Creation, fellowship, work, sin, judgment, redemption, and fulfillment. Full disclosure, the sermon has more words than normal, but I'm wearing a sport coat, so it's okay. Uh, I'm just kidding, of course, not about the word count, but the sport coat. Uh, It does have more, but here's why I think it's good nonetheless. I think it's good to take all of Genesis, at least in the form of these main themes, and hold it up before us. These are themes that carry on throughout the rest of the Bible. They're themes we need to understand and get our heads and hearts around. And they are, if you're a builder of any sort, a plumb line of sorts for us. They they give us something to measure reality against, our own hearts and desires and thoughts and views of the world and ourselves and of our God. And so I want you to do four things. I want you to take all, I, I was I had planned to actually do the math. I didn't do it. It's been a number of months we've been in Genesis. Take all that you, whether you've come in the last one or two, that's okay, or or if you've been here for all of Genesis, I want you to use this sermon, think back, ask God for help, because I barely remember last week, let alone you know three years ago, but, but ask God for help. Remember back through Genesis, especially as we go through it this morning, and identify one way that God has gotten bigger for you. Your, your view of God and his relationship to you and to this world, one way he's gotten bigger for you and praise him for that. Identify one way in light of these themes, in light of Genesis, that you have found that you have failed to conform yourself to the life that God has called you to and confess that to him as sin. Find one way this morning that God has worked and changed you and give him thanks for that. And then lastly, find one way that you can pray that God has revealed to you that you would like him to change you. Or maybe that someone in your family has revealed that to you and pray that God would do that in them. So one, one way that you can adore God more, uh, confess your sins, give thanks, and, and lift up your request to him. So the, the, the banner over all of that before I pray is this. The fact that Genesis answers, or at least begins to answer, the question of what is our place in God's plan points to something greater still. We all have all kinds of plans that flow out of varying degrees of wisdom, and we have varying degrees of power to carry them out. That's the nature of life on earth. But Genesis is ultimately about a God who has all power, all goodness, all wisdom, the ability to perfectly create, therefore, and carry out a plan for all time and space and to assign us a place in it. 
In other words, Genesis is really about a God who is greater than you could ever imagine, putting his immeasurable glory on display in the things that he has made. The aim of the sermon, then, once again, is to help all of us come to know God better and to live more in line with the perfect purpose for which he made us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this people. Thank you that many have been here throughout all of Genesis. Thank you that there are some who haven't, who get to hear all of it in a certain way, at least, in the next uh, few minutes. I pray that for all of us, no matter how many we've been through, how many, how many sermons on Genesis we've been through, I pray that all of us would see it with fresh eyes this morning. Above all, your glory that's revealed in it, but with that, our place in this world. Help us to understand Help us to understand better today what it means to live as you intend us to. To live lives of fullness and fulfillment. To live lives in light of the world as it really is. Not as we've made it to be or others have wrongly told us it was. But as it really is. Thank you that Genesis offers at least the beginning of all of that and more to us. I pray that we would see it and love it and be transformed by it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Seven themes. The very first one is creation. The very first theme in Genesis and the very beginning of any understanding of our place in God's plan is creation. Genesis begins, if if you know anything about the Bible, you might know how it begins. God created, in the beginning it says God created the heavens and the earth. Grace, remember this today again. All that has been made has been made by God. Nothing that has come into existence has come into existence through any other means than by the word and the hand of God. Or as John 1.3 says, all things were made through him and without him not anything was not anything made that was made. There are two keys to understanding this that I want to give you this morning. Two keys to understanding creation in Genesis and its significance for understanding our place in God's plan. First, again, God made that God made all that has been made means that everything belongs to God. That's simple. Kids, you can get that. All things belong to God. Everything that has been made That everything that has been made has been made by God means all things belong to God. Because all things have come from God, God rightfully rules over all things. This is easy to see from the very beginning of Genesis as God speaks into existence and then tells everything what to do. (laughs) It's amazing to think that God tells light what to do and it obeys, but it does. Light and darkness, sky, land and water, plants and animals and people. God told them what to do, and all things obeyed without pause. Even after the fall, Genesis is filled with examples of God sovereignly ruling over the heavens and the earth, big and small events, weather, food, ordinary people and kings, barrenness and fruitfulness, cities and nations. God created, and God rules perfectly over his creation. Remember that. 
You cannot understand where you fit in this world if you don't begin with the fact that God made and God rules. And the second aspect of God's creation we don't want to miss that Genesis introduces us to is that God not only brought all things into existence and rules over them, but he also created all things. Look around, lock eyes with someone, be a little weird, but do it anyway. Look at, not, then, then look at, you know, uh, the, the materials that the sheetrock was made out of, and then look at your shoes, and if they're decent, maybe they have some leather in them, and, and think of the cows, and think of the things that have been made, and remember this. God has assigned purpose and nature to all things. Now think of the institutions that you are a part of, whether it's a government or a marriage or a family. All that has been made has been given a nature and a purpose by God. Things are grace. Write this down. Remember this. Tell this to someone today. Things are what God designed them to be. All things are what God designed them to be. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing different, no matter how hard we try. That God not only created but also ordered his creation is made clear from the very beginning as well. After declaring that God made the heavens and the earth, in verse 1, in verse 2 we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And what follows in the next two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, describes God's ordering of the formless and dark void, of God assigning or revealing the nature of the things that he made. The main point here is that things are and are for whatever our creator said they are and are for. So what is our place in God's plan in light of this? I hope it's easy for you to see that in light of God as creator, as ruler and designer of all, our place in God's plan is as ones who belong to God. He is, he is our God. We are not our own. We are not ultimately in charge of our lives. We are not our highest authority. It is not up to us to decide who we are. A lot of us spend a lot of time telling ourselves, making up and telling ourselves who we are instead of listening to what God has declared us to be. It is not up to us to decide who we are, no matter how we feel about ourselves, either too good or too bad or something in between. It is not up to us to decide who we are or how we fit into the world that God made. God is our king and we are his subjects and nothing we can do can change that. What we can do is conform to that or not and experience all of the fullness that comes from conforming to it or the futility that comes from rejecting it. Our place in God's plan is one of total submission. What's more, and equally important, even if increasingly foreign today, is the fact that with God as our creator, our place in God's plan is not only to submit to his rule as our king, but also to his design. We are to do what God tells us to do because he's king, and also be what God tells us to be as our designer. This means that it is a fool's errand to try to redefine that which God has established. We are so often like the little kid who tries to turn a clothespin into a laser gun or a pile of dirt into a five-course meal. You've seen it. You've probably done it, right? Sticks and rocks and leaves turn into this great banquet or something out. 
No matter how strong a kid's imagination is, no matter how much they want it to be true, no matter how much they believe it to be true, no matter how much they try to convince their little brother or sister that it's true, leaves are leaves and rocks are rocks and sticks are sticks and banquets are banquets by God's design. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we believe in our attempts, things are always going to be exactly what God has declared them to be. Our place in God's plan, then, is to conform ourselves to those things, all of them, always. Grace, combined here, this this is the end of the first theme. These things mean that a life live, uh, to live a life of any genuine fulfillment, which by God's design we're all meant to do, live lives of genuine fulfillment, to do so is to live a life of submission to God and conformity to his design for you. Every ounce of frustration you've ever felt and every feeling of futility that you've ever experienced is owing to a failure to conform ourselves to the world as God has made it. That's the first theme. Here's the second. God made us and designed us, and Genesis even tells us a little bit about some of that. For instance, Far from a vague theoretical charge, Genesis gets specific about some aspects of our divine design, nature and purpose. In particular, to read Genesis, to pay attention as you're reading, means you'll quickly discover that you were made for fellowship. You are not meant to be alone. You're made for fellowship first with God and also with others. That's the second theme, with God. God did not create his people, and then remain far off from them. He did not create mankind in a place far removed from his presence. God created mankind to live in a garden with God. It was God's garden, and mankind was meant to be with him in it. It is difficult, no matter how hard I've tried over the last several years in Genesis, it is difficult for me to get my head around. But the first people, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve lived with God in the garden that he made for them. They walked with God and talked with God in a manner similar to that which is promised in the new heavens and the new earth. There was a kind of fellowship that no one on earth except Jesus himself has known since Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. But God made man to live with him in fellowship in the garden. This is a review sermon, so it isn't the place to fully unpack this, but settle on this grace. Settle on this. God made mankind to be in fellowship with our Creator. We are meant to know and be known by God. We are meant to delight in His presence and His will, even as we acknowledge Him as our King. We're going to move on, but I've prayed this week that this one point especially This one point would stay with you above all the rest this week and beyond. Our place in God's plan is to be in fellowship with the God of all power and all glory and all dominion and all beauty and all splendor and all goodness and all wisdom and all love. You were made to know this God and be known by him and to live in perfect fellowship with him. You cannot live in this world as you were intended if you don't understand that. But just as mankind was made for fellowship with God, so too were we made for fellowship with one another. In words that are likely familiar to anyone who's ever attended a wedding, we read in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. 
This is true of for all kinds of reasons, including, as we'll see in just a little bit, productivity and reproductivity. But at the heart of them all is the fact that our place in God's plan is to be in fellowship with others. So what does this say about how we are to live our lives? On a very practical level, three things, way too quickly. First, it means under ordinary circumstances, our place in God's plan is to pursue marriage. The context of Genesis 2 and the type of loneliness that God is speaking of specifically here is that he had plans for Adam to have a wife, to help him with his God-given commission to subdue and and fill the earth. That's not to say that you have no place or even a lesser place if you're not married. We'll see more clearly about that in the next two practical points here. But it is to say that God designed the world in such a way that marriage is the norm and under normal circumstances our place in God's plan is inside marriage for a unique kind of fellowship. Well, that leads to the second uh, practical implication that we are made for fellowship. The mission God has given to all of us. He's given us a mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world is only possible with the kind of covenant fellowship or covenant friendship provided in the local church. Our place in God's plan is, an, is as active, interdependent, on-mission participants in the body of Christ. Genesis gives us hints and seeds of this that we only find the fullness of in the New Testament. But there is, therefore, fellowship room at Grace Church for young and old, married and single, rich and poor, people who are creative and logical and social and quiet and upfront and behind the scenes, and for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We don't always live these things out perfectly at Grace, but they are all a part of our place in God's plan. And finally, and most importantly, this means on a practical level that we are made to be with God. Our place in God's plan is to have consistent, meaningful, fulfilling, quiet times, times of devotion, times of fellowship, times of prayer and Bible reading and worship where we truly meet with God. Our place is to join in creation and continually delighting in and declaring the glory of God. Our place is to continually experience the presence and favor of God in our lives in Christ. Our place is to talk continually to God in the certain knowledge that he is near and that he hears every word and loves us deeply. Even though sin makes our fellowship with God dulled, Jesus makes our fellowship with God real and significant, even as we await the perfect, renewed garden fellowship of eternity. Genesis helps us to see that this is part of our place in God's plan. Here's the third one. Contrary to the way many view their place in this world, begrudgingly working hard enough to get away from work on weekends and eventually entirely in retirement, Genesis tells us that God made mankind for work. You can grumble a little bit if you want, but then you got to repent of that grumbling. This is the plumb line to measure yourself again. Just like at the beginning, I said this sermon has more words than normal. What did your heart do? Did you think, sweet, more time and fellowship with God under his word and his people? Or did you think, oh man, (laughs) Uh, I got it stuffed in the oven. In the same way, when you hear that God made you for work, what did your heart do? Did you think, oh goodness, or did you think, awesome, I didn't necessarily know that, but now I do. This is the plumb line that I measure things against. 
It was a good test. Genesis tells us that God made mankind for work, now and forever. We see this most clearly in Genesis 1.28. God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Work it being reproductive. (laughs) And subdue it and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we see that same charge stated even more succinctly in the next chapter. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Grace, our place in God's plan, is to work at ordering and filling the earth, filling it with people who love God. So what does this this say about our place in God's plan? It means that hard work is a part of how we live life, lives of fulfillment. Our lives are not made, tell yourself this, remind yourself of this, our lives are not made for leisure, but for work. Vacation isn't the goal. Productivity is. Rest is right. God built that into creation, but rest is for better work, work of greater productivity and efficiency. The nature and amount of work of our work certainly varies from person to person. Different ones among us have different capacities, and our the nature and amount of our work will certainly change over time. But our call to work will not change. It will not go away, not even in the new heavens and the new earth. With all of that, there's something else that we cannot miss. you got to get this. God is always at work for glory and for good, and we are made to join him always in that. God is always at work himself for glory and for good, and we are made to join him in that. Work for its own sake isn't the point. Some of you need to repent of being workaholics of sorts or working for its own sake. Work for its own sake isn't inherently good, but working towards the things that God has called us to always is. It is a great gift that God has given us in creating us to spend our lives doing things of significance as we work with God in restoring the garden that sin has wreaked havoc on, the garden that we were made for. Let us give ourselves then with God in his strength and according to the gifts he's given us to fruitfulness and productivity and ordering and service and blessing and protection and provision. Work. Our place in God's plan, according to Genesis, is to work. With that, get this. The kind of physical work described in Genesis pointed to a greater kind of work a spiritual work that God has for his people. Hints of that are seen in passages like Genesis 22, 17 and 18, where God promised blessing to the whole world through Abraham. Abraham would work and obey God and and then through that be a blessing to the whole world in a certain way. And that is a foreshadowing of Jesus' words in Matthew 28, where he commissioned us to work at making disciples of all nations. All of our work done as unto the Lord is significant and meaningful. But declaring the good news to the whole world, that the whole world can be reconciled to God by grace through faith in Jesus, is the highest form of work that God has called us to. Whether you're doing that as a a traffic control technician or uh, a maintenance supervisor or as a professor at a school or as a police officer or whatever context you do your physical work in, 
your highest calling is to use that as a platform to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the whole world. Our place in God's plan then is to work at delighting in God. Work hard at delighting in God. Helping bring order and fill, filling the earth. And then shouting from the rooftops the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth theme. We're moving along. The fourth theme of Genesis that I want to highlight for you is sin. According to the Westminster Shorter Confession, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The first sin among mankind, the first transgression of the law of God is found in Genesis 3. God had given Adam and Eve the entire garden for food, all of it, except for one tree. In Genesis 3, under the temptation of the serpent, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. They sinned against God. More tragically still, the sin was not a one-time thing. It initiated a corruption that went into their even their very natures. And this corruption was so toxic and thorough that it was passed on from them to their offspring. Indeed, a short time later, as one of their own sons killed the other, their sins spread and destroyed to the point that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every institution of the thought or every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. No matter what anyone tried in Genesis, this sin just kept spreading wider and deeper such that everyone was completely corrupted by it. We cannot read Genesis rightly or understand the people around us or ourselves, or the world we live in, apart from understanding that sin has worked its way into every facet of creation. You can't live in this world as you were made to live if you don't understand that sin is in it. Well, what does this say about our place in God's plan? I hope it's obvious to you that being a sinner is not your place in God's plan. In it, it is in a very, it is in very real ways, sin and being a sinner, a forsaking of your place in God's plan. And yet every aspect of life in this world is affected by it in us and around us. Therefore, if we are to live as God intends, we need to come to grips with the fact that sin makes truly finding and living in our God-given place impossible apart from Christ and hard even in Christ. Let me say that again. What is our place in God's plan? It's certainly not to be sinners, but knowing that we are and we live among sinners and that sin has corrupted the earth. What does that mean? It means that truly finding and living in our God-given place is impossible apart from new birth in Christ and difficult even with it. So what do we do then? Four things. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Genesis doesn't tell us this, but it introduces us to this. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. We know in full now what they didn't know then, that Jesus is our only uncertain hope to overcome sin and come back to the garden, <laughs> to come back to the garden that we were made for in fellowship with God. Sinner and saint, look to Jesus today. Number two, be humble. Knowledge of sin and its effects means that we ought to be humble people. Sin means that our understanding is always limited. How many arguments have you been in where you were sure that you were right, only to find out later you weren't? No matter how right you are, your knowledge and understanding is still limited. Be humble. Sin sin has blinded us and keeps us constantly from seeing things as they are. 
Our understanding is limited. Our motives are never purely pure. Our perspective is tainted. Be humble. Number three, be gracious. Genesis helps us to see that apart from divine intervention, we are all in the same sin boat. You can look at some people in their, their heart's condition is more obvious on the outside, and we think, wow, they're, man, they're, <laughs> thank God I'm not like them. But Jesus has words for you <laughs> when you think that way. Be gracious. Apart from God's grace, we are all in the same sin boat. It doesn't always look the same on the outside, but we have the same rebellious, corrupt, hostile hearts to God. In the knowledge that our only hope is in the grace of God, that we that we are, as sinners, that our only hope is in the grace of God, we're lost and rebellious just as everyone else is, we are gracious to others. We know that whatever grace is on us, we didn't deserve or it wouldn't be grace. And so we treat others that way. We're patient with people in their sin, even as we point them to Jesus. And lastly, we make war. What is our place in God's plan in light of the fact that sin is in us and around us? We make war. Our, our place is to fight sin, to call sin, sin, to fight against it wherever we can. We're not to make friends with sin or to make treaties with sin. We must be at constant war against it. Here's the next one. That's bad. Sin makes everything harder. Sin makes everything fuzzier and more difficult, but it gets worse. Not only does sin make it harder to know how to live out our place in God's plan, there are more serious consequences that come with it as well. The fifth main theme of Genesis, and the most uncomfortable of them all, is God's judgment upon us for our sin. In particular, in Genesis, God's judgment comes in three main forms. you got to get these because we still deal with these. Death, curse, and homelessness. Death, curse, and wandering. Like every good ruler does, God made his expectations plain from the beginning as well as the consequences for failing to meet them. He gave he gave Adam and he gave Adam Eve at the time hadn't been created yet just one rule. You may surely eat of the tree of of every tree in the garden, but the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat. Although there was only one thing the man was prohibited from doing, the consequences for disobedience couldn't have been higher. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. As I mentioned earlier, Adam and Eve did eventually eat from the tree. Interestingly, however, what didn't happen? <laughs> they didn't immediately drop dead, did they? As we might expect. Well, we know now what they didn't know then. What is that? That their disobedience did bring about immediate death, but it was a spiritual death. It brought about everlasting enmity with God apart from the grace of God. And it also brought about eventual physical death, neither of which would have been part of the garden had Adam and Eve obeyed God. The reality of this great, greatest tragedy played out without exception throughout Genesis. How do we know this is true? We know it's true because literally everyone died. <laughs> All of them. Every single one of them. But that's not it. God's judgment took another form as well. It took the form of curse. Particularly, hardship. Hardships. In the time between the spiritual death that we're born into now and the physical death that we all experience. The curse is mainly about the time in between. Life is harder because of that. 
In Genesis 3, we're told of the curse that all men and women after Adam and Eve have been under. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, ch- your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. And if you were here back then, you remember that's not merely the, de- the delivery. It sounds a little bit like it's merely the delivery. But it is in bringing kids into the world and raising them in a fallen place. That's part of the curse that God put on women for Eve's sin. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you are taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. Again, in all of this, God's judgment is such that the very things that he designed us to be and to do are made harder. This too, we see played out throughout all of Genesis. Lastly, God's judgment took the form of homelessness, exile, wandering. We see this in two main places, in the garden and then in Egypt. First, and perhaps most explicitly of all, immediately after God cursed Adam and Eve, God drove them out of the very home, the very garden that he made for them and made them for. In Genesis 3, we read this, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. This was both a real and symbolic act. Get this, Grace. It was real in that Adam and Eve were no longer allowed in their home. But as tragic as that was, the symbolic nature was even worse. Not only would they no longer have this home, they would no longer have any home. They would always, from that point on, be wanderers and sojourners on this earth. God's judgment on Adam and Eve was such that they and their offspring forever would be perpetually homeless until his grace broke in. And the clearest picture of God's wandering judgment, and one that would last for centuries, is seen in the fact that although God promised Abraham and his offspring the land of Canaan, they spent most of their time in Egypt. They were perpetual strangers. They never had a land of their own in Genesis. And even later when they would get it, they would know that they were not home yet. So what does this say about our place in God's plan? Living under the judgment of God like sin is part of our reality still today. Each of these, death, curse, and wandering. But God is, but, but these things are not a God-honoring part of our place in God's plan. Living in light of the understanding that Genesis gives then means constantly seeing the hardships in this life. Think of your hardships. Draw one to mind if you would. Something probably this morning was hard. Something you're anticipating later today or this week is probably hard. What does Genesis tell us about that? It means constantly seeing the hardships of this life as a reminder of the sinfulness of sin. It is a reminder that this is not our home yet. It is a reminder that even though life is hard, every minute we spend apart from the horror of the merging of spiritual and physical death apart from God's grace, which is hell, is a gift. It is a reminder that our only hope is the grace of God, and it is a constant reminder 
of the great grace of God that Jesus took our judgment. He took our death and our curse, the kind that we're first introduced to in Genesis, upon himself that we might be brought home again to the garden of God. Two more. Number six. Creation, fellowship, work, sin, and judgment are anything but subtle in Genesis. On the other hand, the sixth theme, the promise of redemption, is only hinted at, albeit in a number of ways. One such example is in chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam, this is right after the fall, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God sacrificed an animal in order to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. This was a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that would come, that God would give to his people, the descendants of Abraham, which was in itself a foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, the true Lamb of God. Again, that type of subtle expression of God's promised redemption is sprinkled throughout Genesis. Let me share just a few more of them with you so that you can see it. To fully appreciate what Jesus was and did and accomplished, we need Genesis. So one other way is through the offspring of Eve. The first gospel, as it is often called, is 315. God's cursed the serpent by promising, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was a promise of a continual war between the offspring of the serpent and the children of men. But more importantly, it was a promise that one day, one from the line of Eve would eventually win. Here's another way, through covenant. The least subtle subtle promise of redemption came in the form of covenants. God made one with Noah, for instance, and another with Abraham. The one that he made with Noah was primarily a promise not to execute a particular kind of judgment ever again on earth. But for Abraham, it was a different kind of covenant altogether. It is stated and restated many times in Genesis, but probably clearest in chapter 17. God said to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. This is his covenant promise with hints of redemption. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. Give you a king. I will give you a home. I will be your God. It's hints. They thought it meant one thing, and it did. It meant those things but it meant something greater still. God's main promise to Abraham was to be Abraham's God. The New Testament makes clear then what Genesis doesn't, namely that as great of a promise as this was to Abraham, it was far, far greater than he possibly could have understood. It was a promise based on God's knowledge that he would one day send the offspring of Eve, that he would send the descendant of Abraham, the king, to make the covenant work in light of the sin and judgment that were upon mankind. We see this exemplified in Abraham and Isaac when God provided a ram as a sacrifice in place of Isaac. 
We see that all of this is accomplished by God. In spite of Abraham and his offspring's continual rejection of the covenant terms, God remained faithful and kept them in the covenant. It was to be received through faith. One of the most significant statements on redemption in Genesis is in 15.6. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In the New Testament, in Paul, he helps us to see what Abraham only got a glimpse of. That the redemption sinful man so desperately needed, that you and I so desperately need, and God promised would not come through good works, but through faith. So what does this say of our place in God's plan? Collectively, this Genesis theme helps us to see that our place in God's plan is one of trusting in God. We are to be a people who simply believe God. He has made a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled to him. Our job is to place our faith in this promised grace of God. Having done so, it it will produce, inevitably, acts of obedience. But we are to live in the certain knowledge that our redemption comes from God alone. Stop trying grace to earn God's favor. You can't do it. Stop trying to make yourself right with God. You cannot do it. No amount of prayer, no amount of coming to church. I mean, some of you were at church on Friday night and this morning. I mean, that's big time, right? Two two times in 48 hours? Goodness, I mean, that ought to earn something. Stop trying to earn God's favor. Stop trying to make yourself right with God. Genesis gives us hints that it was always going to be by God, always by grace, and always through faith in Jesus Christ. Genesis shows us that without exception, God kept his word and delivered on his promises, grace. Every time, always. Receive the forgiveness that is yours by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Let him carry the complete burden of your salvation. Here's the last one and shortest one. As we've seen a number of times already, Genesis shows us the perfect faithfulness of God, even as we await the full fulfillment of all of the promises of God until Jesus. God kept his word to Cain, not to make his life unbearable, even though he killed his brother. To Noah, to preserve his family and not to destroy the earth again by flood. To Abraham, to keep him safe, to give him a son through Sarah, and to provide a down payment on land that would belong to them. To Hagar, to give Ishmael many offspring. To Isaac, to be with him and to bless him through famine and danger. To Joseph, to have him rule over his family and rescue many people through him. And to everyone else to whom he made a promise. God was perfectly faithful. Genesis shows us that. And although God did not fully fulfill every promise he made in the span of Genesis, there were down payments made on all of them. Genesis, again, shows us that without exception, God kept his word and delivered on every promise. So what does that say about our place in God's plan? Once again, our place is to fully trust God's promises, even as we long for their full fulfillment. We are where we find a promise. We found something more certain than anything else in the universe. Grace, marvel at the facts. Get this. Marvel at this, that God's promised future blessing is every bit as real as as our present reality. In light of these things, we ought to search the Bible diligently for God's promises and build our lives entirely upon them. Common sense and worldly wisdom are not meant 
They cannot bear the weight of our hope. God's promises alone can and will forever. So here's my conclusion. Creation, fellowship, work, sin, judgment, redemption, and fulfillment. Each of these things are key themes in Genesis. And each defines a significant aspect of our place in God's plan. As remarkable as all of these things are, however, Genesis merely reveals the beginning of each of these things. Creation will find its fulfillment in the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth, where we will be brought back into the garden with God, an even greater garden where sin and judgment will be done away with. The curse will be entirely lifted. Its lifting has been secured in Christ who took it upon himself, but one day all of its effects will be lifted as well. More than merely being free from sin and all of its effects, as great as that will be, we will have everlasting and perfect fellowship with God and all of his people. We will work with perfect joy and efficiency every day of eternity. Our salvation will be complete and every promise will be fully fulfilled. Grace Genesis is the foundation of the rest of God's story of redemption and revelation of our place in God's plan. It is where God first reveals himself as greater than we could ever imagine and his promises worthy of being wholly trusted in. Understanding Genesis is an essential part of understanding God, the world that he made, us, and our place in it. Above all, though, Genesis is the beginning of the centuries-long arrow that pointed straight at Jesus. Subtly but repeatedly, Genesis promises and introduces us to the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the lamb who would take away our sins. More significantly still, Genesis begins to establish the simple but all-consuming reality that our place in God's plan is to find salvation and satisfaction in the one place it is to be found, in Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Praise be to God. Amen.